church, if you have a copy of God's Word, you want to open up to John chapter 6. If you don't, there's a, some pews in the back of the, my Bible's in the back of the pews there, and you'll find our text on 520 in those Bibles. Let's hear the word of the Lord. We're going to pick up in verse 35. I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. But as I told you, you see me, and yet you do not believe. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me will never ca- I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those who he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up. On the last day. Church, this is where the Lord. Amen. You guys may be seated. Wow, what a blessing, what a treat it has to have MH here this morning. We'll be praying for them as they and their work over there. I've been able to follow them now the last five or six years since we've had getting this church going and very thankful for their work over there. And we're just gonna keep on praying that the Lord does that and, and, and certainly pursue opportunities for us to to encourage that work in whatever way the Lord calls us to. You've probably heard the expression, seeing is believing, right? You, you get it, right? We, get, we understand what it means, seeing is believing. It's, the idea is, is that behind it is uh, there's seeing something helps you actually ratify or, or verify the, that, that thing in, in and of itself. So in other words, it will help us with our experiences. It will help us with our decision-making because when we see something in person, it's easier to, to put some trust into it in, in some way. So seeing is believing. Let me, let me kind of try to use this example. Um, when I bought my, well, not my first car, I guess my second car, and my first car was a 1980 Ford Pinto Postal Class. That was my first car. Awesome. And, uh, and it actually never stopped running. I turned it off, and it would keep on running after I turned off the ignition. So, now my second car was a Honda Accord, and uh, and so my stepdad though was one of those guys that was very particular about going and purchasing cars, and he wouldn't let you walk up on a car lot and you know just pick the car that looked the best to you. You know, because I, mean, I was a teenager and I just wanted the coolest looking car I possibly could. I could get, and he was like, no, 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 there's more to picking out a car than just going and finding the one that you, that you like the most, the one that you think looks the coolest. You need, to, you need to take this thing out for a spin. You need to kick a tire or two. You need to take it to our mechanic, and let's see if this thing is actually worth buying. Seeing is believing, right? Seeing is believing. That's, that's the whole idea of this principle, that we need to see more than just the outward appearance of something, but we actually need to look in inward to an inward reality, like look under the hood, right? And we need to start learning how to look under the hood of life. And that's kind of what this idea of seizing, seeing and believing is really all about. That we live in a world where we're prone not to look under the hood, not to examine our life, or at best, if we examine our life, we examine it superficially. Uh, again, uh, you probably, it's become quite popular today that we're actually have kind of moved away from this idea of seeing as believing. So now people buy cars online. I, if you did that, I'm not judging you. But like people buy, the, I'm not, I mean, it's your, your deal. Um, if you, I, don't, I don't care. But uh, at the end of the day, we buy cars online, like sight unseen. Or we even now, because of how hot the, um, the real estate market is here in Nashville, like people go and literally buy houses and lease houses sight unseen now. 
because you can't, uh, you may not, have that house might not be available in two days. And so we have this idea that we've kind of, that's kind of become quite popular um, today where we, we, we don't really believe seeing is believing. We, we believe we can just kind of, we can get by. But even if these trends are popular, there's something inside of us that needs to recover this idea of seeing is believing. That, that, that verifying something helps us have confidence in what we believe. But there's a problem when we read the scriptures with this idea of seeing is believing. Because the scriptures tell us that there's a, there's, there's a deep down problem inside of all hearts. It says we actually can't see. That we can't trust our sight. Because sight requires more than just superficial sight. That we, we tend to be, look at just the outward realities, but, in re, but, but the Christian faith says, no, we need to be trained to look at deeper things. Scripture tells us that our ability to see is shaded. It's darkened. It's darkened by sin. It's darkened by brokenness of the world. And therefore, in the Christian world sometimes, seeing isn't always believing. Because, because of sin, we... We see what we want to see, and therefore we believe what we want to believe. That's the nature of our human condition, our brokenness, our sinfulness. And it's this idea that Jesus wants to bring to the attention of this crowd who's been kind of following him since he fed them um, early in chapter 6. This five feeding the 5,000. Jesus' ministry has been leading to this crescendo. That he has been ministering to these people out in the wilderness and, 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 and caring for them. And at several points as you're reading through this, we're tempted to believe that like, maybe they are seeing Jesus. Maybe they're getting it, right? Remember, remember verse 14, when the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this is truly a prophet who is to come, who has come into the world. So there seems to be indication that maybe they're starting to get it. They start to see Jesus. Or in verse 34, when it says, give us this bread so that we may have it always. But in both those cases, what does Jesus do? He pumps the brakes because he realizes they really don't see what they think they see. They really don't believe what they think they believe. And that's one of the fundamental thing, problems that we come up with when we actually have to meet Jesus. When we want to follow Jesus is do we actually see Jesus for who he really is? And are we willing to believe that truth and anchor our lives on it? These guys, they're following Jesus and they see him as a meal ticket. We've talked about this numerous times. They see Jesus as this guy who's going to be this great king who comes in and corrects all the socio-political realities of Jerusalem. But Jesus is far more than that. Far more than that. In this section, Jesus confronts this idea of our pervasive unbelief. That's what this is really all about. It's like, if you're really going to get this idea of enjoying the manna of Christ, which is what this whole context of this whole chapter's been so far, is enjoying the manna of Christ. If you, if the, the, what prevents you from actually doing that is this pervasive reality of unbelief that exists in all of our hearts without God's intervention in it. And so therefore, the main idea that I want us to wrestle with this morning from this text, the one simple sentence, is that because Jesus does the will of the Father by receiving and preserving the, his own people, you and I have this privilege to enjoy the manna of Christ's crucified life. Amen. But we can't enjoy that if we don't really understand Jesus' mission. If we don't really understand what he's come to do and why God has sent him to do what he has done. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at this text under three headings. We're going to look at this. We're going to expose the, the big problem of unbelief. We're going to look at it 
We're going to look at it clearly, the stubborn unbelief that's in our hearts. We're going to then look at the twofold mission of Jesus. And then we're going to look at this idea of, of, of ultimately this, this, this shift that we need to take in our minds and our hearts in order to see Jesus correctly. And at the end, that will then set us up to be able to actually enjoy the meal. Enjoy Christ. To live by faith in Christ and what he's accomplished for us all of our days. And that's really important for us. So let's look at the first heading here, exposing the problem of our stubborn unbelief. Verse 36, Jesus gets after it pretty quickly. But I, as I told you, you've seen me, yet you do not believe. As I told you, in other words, I've been telling you this all along. You haven't been listening. You haven't really heard. You haven't really seen. You think you see, but you don't. And Jesus is kind of coming right back to this idea. Right after the verse 34, sir, give us this bread. Always, I've told you, you see me, but you don't believe me. You don't really know who I really am. There's been no shortage of eagerness by these people who have fallen Jesus through through the wilderness, but they tend to elevate Jesus into places that he's not supposed to be. In other words, the real issue here is that Jesus is going to confront is their short-sightedness. This is a real problem for us, to be short-sighted, to actually just be reductionistic in our relationship with Jesus. Short-sightedness is is an idea that we, we think we see, but we really don't see. That's the reality that we need to wrestle with. That throughout this particular narrative that we've been studying the last couple weeks, next few weeks, is that this crowd has been standing in their stubborn blindness, thinking that they can see. And they can't see. They're blind. They're masquerading. Their sight is, they're masquerading with, as if they have sight, but they don't really have sight at all. And he says, you see me, but you do not believe. See, Jesus wants to take a moment with these believers, I mean, these people who are following him, and he just wants to kind of get really real with them to expose the deeper problem that exists in the heart of mankind, that's been in the heart of mankind since the fall, really, is what Jesus is trying to confront here. That that's got to be overcome if you're really going to enjoy the mania of Christ. And, and here's, the, here's the kind of the dirty little secret. You and I can't overcome that ourselves. We don't have the capacity in ourselves to do that because of how deep our sin nature actually is. The Bible's view of our unbelief is pretty stark. Uh, the Old Testament uses the term stiff neck. That, that's how God referred to not only the people of the world, but a lot of times his own people. Think about a couple of examples. Pharaoh. Pharaoh in Exodus. Moses has come to him multiple times, said, let my people go. And what does Pharaoh do? He bows up. He gets stiff necked. He, his heart is hardened. When when Moses brings these, these ideas there, he's resistant. He's resistant to God's word. That's his nature. That's who he is. He's, he's got a hardened heart. But in case you think it's all about the baddie here, it's more than this. Because it wasn't just Pharaoh who had a stiff neck. It was actually Israel themselves countless times as they were leaving, not trusting God. He says, you have a stiff neck problem too. And so as they finally leave, you know, Egypt how appropriate that is, right? And they go out into the wilderness, this people show off their obstinate defiance of God over and over and over again. That they're resistant to believing God through Moses. And how many times did he go to Moses and complain about God to him? Or or, or let's just kind of punt it down a a few generations to to David and and Solomon. After, After they have, and their kingdoms have gone, and all these kingdoms that kind of followed after them, what did God... Always, what was he sending the prophets to do? 
He sent the prophets to confront the stiff-necked reality of his people. Why? Because our unbelief, our stubborn unbelief is real. They would, these people were turning away from the God who had given all these promises and provided for his people. And they kept saying, but, but you don't understand, God. Look at all the other nations. They're so blessed. They're so powerful. So, so we, must want, we, we must worship their gods if we're going to have that kind of blessing. This is what we're tempted to do. Stiff neck. Unbelief. We do it in all kinds of ways in our lives, right? All of this then, of course, is just rooted in Adam and Eve, right? At the end of the day, that's the real heartbeat of everything that is going on behind this stubborn unbelief that exists in our lives, in our hearts. That not believing God's covenantal promise and rather choosing to allow the twisting of God's word and to twist our hearts. This is what the serpent did, right? He took God's word and he twisted it and therefore twisted our hearts. And that's what we've been, that's what we've been doing since the beginning. And every human being, every man, every woman, every child has been in this condition. See, Jesus is saying very clearly here, I've been telling you this, I've been telling you this, but here's the deal. Your stubborn unbelief is so, so, is so, so problematic that you can't overcome it on your own. That's what he's going to, and then he's going to spend the rest of his time showing them how it is overcome. It's beautiful. It's amazing. But let's just think about this in terms of like our own lives, right? This is like the biggest obstacle of my life. Hopefully you can, be able, you can say the same thing about your life. Like it's this obstacle of, of unbelief is what gets in the way of so many of my lives like living faithfully for Christ. Just not trusting Jesus and trusting that he will take care of us. And, and, and frankly, it's so fundamental to the gospel. It's so fundamental to Christian conversion. Because if you don't, we have to do something about this unbelief. But, but we can't. Only God can. Because here's the reality. By not seeing ourselves rightly, we don't really, true our, we don't really see our true needs. We, don't really, we end up misconstruing our true needs. And therefore, we end up mis- misconstruing who God is. If we don't really see ourselves honestly, we ultimately don't know what kind of God we need. We don't know what kind of Savior we need. And that's what Jesus is saying. The reason you are not seeing me is because you don't really know what kind of savior you actually need. You think you need a savior who's a socio-political activist, but you don't need that kind of savior. No, you need a savior that understands your desperate state of your blindness that prevents you from seeing Jesus. That's the kind of savior you need. Now look, this is not a great start to the sermon, is it? It's not very hopeful. No one likes hearing this kind of stuff. I don't like hearing this, this kind of stuff. In fact, I wouldn't have written it up this way. But the reality is, if we're in this state outside of Christ, the natural, next natural question we have to ask ourselves is, well, then what's, what is our hope? How, do we, how, how is this overcome? And that's exactly what Jesus does. Pick it up in verse 37. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. In other words, this is our second point. Jesus is going to show them, you've got, if you want to understand how your, uh, your unbelief is overcome, you need to understand my mission sent from God. And it's a twofold mission. This twofold mission, we see it right there in verse 37. And of course, we're going to keep on reading down through 40 there as well. But, but look at it. It says, 
everyone the Father gives me will come to me. So then Jesus is, the first level of his mission is he's to receive all of God's people. That's his job. I'm going to gather your people, Father. And not one of them will be lost. And the second part of this mission is not only that they, he would receive them, but that he would preserve them. Right? I will never cast you out. Now, why does this matter? Well, let's just take these two, these two missions of Jesus and kind of break them down just for a moment and kind of look at them a little bit deeper. Christ the receiver is this idea that he comes sent by God. Verse 37 again, just kind of keep our eyes there. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me. And in verse 40, for this is the will of my Father that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life and I will raise him on the last day. Christ has come to receive those who the Father has given him. Jesus here is the sent Son. You, you can't have Jesus unless you understand that he's sent from the Father. In this eternal covenant between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to go and gather God's people from across the nations, as we've been here, we heard this morning. And that's what his mission is. And as you and I come to know that truth, we go out there and we extend this, this truth to everyone we go to. And we say, Jesus is gathering God's people. Amen. Jesus is gathering God's people. He's receiving them. See, Jesus has given us a glimpse at that most superior of covenants that we don't oftentimes think about. We, we think about the covenants between Noah, God Noah and God and Abraham and God and Moses and David and so on and so forth. But what about the covenant between God the Father and God the Son? That covenant that existed before time began. We call it the covenant of redemption. It's that eternal covenant between the Father and the Son before the foundations of the earth. If you want to kind of sum up the statement, it's like this. God's work is this, that God the Father decrees His will. What He, what he decrees, the Son, God the Son secures. And what this God the Son secures, God the Spirit indwells. Now, you tell me, can unbelief stand in the face of that? That God the Father decreed your salvation. And that this salvation that he gives us by his own grace and, and, and his mercy, he decrees and he appoints his son to go secure that through his life, death, and resurrection, right? And he secures that salvation for the people God has sent him to. And then the Spirit indwells them with his presence. Now, why is this important? Why is Jesus showing us this glimpse of this covenant of redemption? Well, I think ultimately he's doing it so that we recognize that at the end of the day, like, like we are, we got to recognize that the work of salvation, the work of redemption is not a work that you and I do. It's the work that God does. And that God in his infinite wisdom Long before one hair was created in the, in, the, in, the, in, the new, in the heavens and earth, back in Genesis 1, God had this plan to send his son to retrieve his people and dwell them with his Holy Spirit. Now, we, we talk about Christ, the, the receiver of God's people. How about Christ, the preserver of God's people? Again, it says there at the end of 30, uh, verse 37, the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven and did not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
This is the will of him who sent me that I should not lose, that I should lose none of those who have given, given to me, but should raise them up on the last day. And this, this is beautiful. That everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. In other words, it's not enough just for us to see that Jesus comes and offers this kind of blanket opportunity for everyone to, 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 to get saved. But not only does he go get them, he makes sure they get all the way home. That is the most astounding reality about your redemption, that, you know, you can be, we can, we, listen, we, we even sing it in our, some of our songs this morning, and all of our failings, but Christ makes sure, because of the Father's decree, and through the indwelling Holy Spirit, you and I will make it all the way home. Every last one of us. He is, his twofold mission is to be the receiver of God's people and to be the preserver of God's people. Jesus is the guarantor of your redemption, friends. That's who he is. Your salvation is secure because he guarantees it. That's what Jesus is trying to help you see and help me see this morning. You can't overcome your own belief, unbelief on your own. Only God can do that. Now, let's just, again, let's step back and think about that before we move into our next point. Because there's great comfort for God's people. And, and, and listen, I, I know this word makes some of us squirm, okay? We can have a conversation afterwards. We can have a session if we need to. But like God's, God's great comfort to his people through his electing love is the most comforting thing that you and I can possibly grasp. That he loves you and he's guaranteeing that you and I will make it all the way home. I think sometimes we get so caught up in the debate, the, the, the intellectual aspects of that, this, that doctrine, that we forget what the doctrine is all about, which is bringing comfort to God's people. That's what Jesus is saying. You don't, you don't really have comfort in me. You have comfort in the manna I keep bringing to you. You have comfort in the fact that you can actually hold this man in your hands, you can hold that fish and the loaves in your hands, and you can eat that. But that's not the comfort I offer you. I offer you a, a, a far different, far more superior, superior manna. See, it's important that we recognize that, that God himself, through the, through the agency of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, taking eternal communion with one another, is, has, been create, has, has been working this plan out far longer than you and I can possibly imagine. It's beautiful. Now, how does that help us with this idea of our problem? Well, I think that's my third point. We need to recognize that the solution is counterintuitive. And the solution is not seeing is believing. It's believing is seeing. It's not seeing is believing for the Christian. It's believing so that you can see. And if you don't get that, you don't understand the gospel. Right? The solution is counterintuitive. He says, you guys are always focusing on what you can see. Look at how they respond to Jesus in verse 41. Therefore, the Jews started grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they were saying, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can, we now, how can he now say, I have come down from heaven? In other words, they couldn't get past what they could see. Here's this Jesus, not that... You know, from this little poor carpenter's family in Nazarene, Nazareth. And he's telling us he's God? The problem that they're struggling with is not, that they, is, not their, is not their sight, it's their belief. 
If they believed, they would see. And that's exactly what he's been trying to show them all along. That Jesus has been using this opportunity in their grumbling to show them that this is exactly the problem you've been having. That you can't see because you don't believe. Believing leads to seeing. See, we need a new set of spectacles. I go see uh, Dr. Fred once a year for my eye, you know, for my eye appointment. Dr. Fred's a great man from our former church. And, uh, and, he, and usually my prescription changes, and I'm getting old now, and we'll have to have those like bifocals here soon, uh, you know. Um, and so he has to kind of change it, shift it, right? It's, 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 a, it's a little bit of a shift every time in my prescription, right? So that I can see a little better than I did the year before. But see, the problem for, the, for, for us is that it, it, it doesn't take just a little incremental shift. It takes a complete shift in everything for the Christian, for those who want to follow Christ, so that we can actually see. And if we, if we don't need just incremental shifts in our prescription, little tweaks, as it were. We need a full-on overhaul to our sight. We need a full-on new set of glasses to wear so that we can actually see what we need to see, and that requires us believing in Jesus. It's so important for us. And that's where he goes into next. He goes, stop your grumbling. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So he puts it point, very pointedly. Again, not, always, not the way I would have drawn it, up, drawn it up, but this is the way God does. Your unbelief is such a problem that it may take the Father drawing you into his good grace for you to be saved. This is what God does. You grumble because you are seeing with the wrong set of eyes, Jesus says. See, the, the Father's drawing is all over scriptures. He called out Noah among this desperate, wicked generation. Was Noah anything prized? No, God went to Noah. How about Abraham? He was living his best pagan life now in Ur, right? And he was happy as a clam there with his dad and his brothers. And God says, no, 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 i got a plan for you, and you're going you're gonna to leave this land, and you're going to go to land that I will show you. Or, or when he came to Moses in Midian, when Moses had fled Egypt, and he tells him, you're going to go back, and you're, and, and you're going to be my mouthpiece, Moses, the stutterer, and you're going to be my mouthpiece, then we'll send to Pharaoh. Or when Moses leads them out into the wilderness, who is it that calls Moses to the mount? God. Who is it that gives Moses the law? God. See, it's always God making the first step. It's God doing the drawing. It's God continually to work all these things out. Or when he chose David among all of his more impressive brothers. See, at the end of the day, the Father's drawing us to salvation is, is, is deeply ingrained throughout the Scriptures because all the covenants that God has established with mankind show that God's the one who takes the first step. God's the one who takes the first step. Friend, may that comfort you this morning. That God's the one who takes the first step to call you to be His own. And that's what He says on here. He says, 
it is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has listened to, to and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that, the, not that anyone who has seen the Father except the one who is from God, he has seen the Father. But truly, I tell you, anyone who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. You need to believe I am the bread of life if you want to see that God's the one who sends his son Jesus to be that bread you and I are so desperate for. So important. Those who listen and are learned from God's revelatory activity throughout the Old Testament are the ones he's drawing into redemption. He's drawing into Christ. And that's why it's so important. See, those who choose to see to believe will die in the wilderness. That's what it says here, right? Your ancestors ate the man in the wilderness and they died. That's not encouraging, is it? In other words, your, your ancestors were concerned about the, 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 the manna that God was giving you instead of the God who provided the manna. That God is the one who provided for you, and that's what you should be reveling in and you should be enjoying. See, seeing only what we believe will lead to the same death that our ancestors or their ancestors experienced. They believed in the manna they, they, they could eat, not in the God who had provided for them. And Jesus wants you to wrestle with this. He wants me to wrestle with this. So what's the substance of your, friend, your faith this morning, friends? Is the substance of your faith your activities, your experiences? Is it your sense of acceptance? Is that, is that what you are depending on to, have, to be able to see Jesus? Or is it the substance of your faith, your God, who comes to you and reveals himself to you and tenderly calls you to himself and secures that call through the Son, Jesus, and indwells you with his Holy Spirit? Amen. It's so beautiful. There's a, there's a big difference between seeing to believe and believing in order to see. Big difference. Miles apart. It's an important, important part to grasp if we're going to get the grasp this last few verses that we're going to look at this morning. Because the next few verses are a little odd. Let's just read it. Verse 50. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for life of the world is my flesh. At that, the Jews argued among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Again, a little dense, right? That's just... But listen, I'm not coming down on them because I can be just the same way. So Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, because my flesh is true blood, true food, and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him, just as the living Father sent me, and I live and sent me, and I live because the Father, so that because of the Father, so that the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It is not like the manna of your ancestors, your ancestors ate. Totally different from them. They died. Again, just he's trying to make that point clear. The one who eats this bread will live forever, though. He, 
In other words, Jesus is trying to get them to say, look, we've been talking about bread of life the entire time. Remember the whole context of this is this, there's allusion to the Exodus event that kind of underlies this whole five, you know, feeding of the 5,000. It's, it's important that we, that we see what's really happening here. That if we're going to enjoy the manna that is Christ, we have to believe in the one who has, from eternity past, saved you and sought you and bought you and indwelled you. If you want to enjoy, that's the only way you can enjoy this new bread. It's the only way that this bread even come, becomes even conceivable. Think about it this way. Like, J.C. Raw helps us here a little bit because people will read this and they go, well, this is pretty weird. Like, this sounds very cultish. You're going to eat someone's flesh and drink someone's blood and, and whatever else. And, and this would have been highly offensive to the, the Jews of his day. And for, for, good, for good reason. It would have been counterintuitive to the law, everything. But J.C. Rowe wants us to understand that, that Jesus is not meaning that we eat Christ's flesh and drink it literally. That mankind is always looking for a new ritual. And he says, so if you're reading it from that vantage point, that you have a new ritual to mediate yourself between God, yourself and God, you're misreading this passage is what J.C. Rowe says. Rather, the true meaning is in this is that eating Christ is living by faith in the crucified Christ. That the flesh and blood that we're talking about here is Christ's sacrifice that atones for your sin and my sin and provides full satisfaction for, for God's, in, in light of God's wrath. And that eating that flesh and that blood is really faith. It's faith in receiving the crucified Christ for your salvation. You've got to believe to see. This is what we're called to. When we feel our own guilt, we return to feed spiritually on the accomplishments of Christ. And it's an everyday reality. To feed on Christ every day is a beautiful gift and a beautiful invitation. Feeding on Christ is living by faith in the crucified Christ. Again, remember the connection again to Exodus. We've noted on several occasions this symmetry of the feeding of the 5,000 with the Exodus event. Let's just look at it from another perspective. In the same way that no safe harbor would have been granted to the Israelites in Egypt on the night of Passover if they did not eat of that Passover lamb, Jesus is saying to them right now, neither will you have safe harbor granted to you if you don't eat, the fa- eat by faith in, forever, in the forever Passover lamb that atones for your sins. Let me say that again. In the same way that no safe harbor would have been granted to the Israelite in Egypt on the night of Passover if they did not eat of that Passover lamb, Neither will safe harbor be granted to anyone. And this is what he's saying to this crowd. Safe harbor will not be granted to anyone who doesn't eat by faith in the forever Passover lamb of Jesus who atones for your sins. It's beautiful. So in other words, if you think you can overcome your obstinate unbelief on your own, you are sorely mistaken. Sorely mistaken. Trust me, I think we've all probably done it in a million different ways tried to figure this out on our own. But Jesus says you can't. That's what my, me, me and the Father and the Holy Spirit have been doing since eternity past. See, true sight leads to the joy of the gospel-centered life. You and I are called to the gospel-centered life. And when we talk about gospel-centered life, certainly we're talking about that the implications of the gospel, right? Those things that kind of come out of our lives because they know that they're, they're implications of what it means to be a Christian in the world. But really what we're talking about is that ultimate 
to live a life centered on the gospel where we are eating and drinking Christ all our days. That we are daily comforted and given joy as His people as we live in bodies of of sin and death until Christ finally returns. Friends, that is the hope you have in Christ. That you may struggle, you may faint, you may fall, you may stumble, but Christ will comfort you and bring you joy as you wait on His return. Because you're going to make it all the way home. You're going to make it all the way home. If your faith is in Christ, and that just reminds you of that last thought, then we'll go to the table. We have future hope that Christ will raise us up on that final day. Isn't that what we're all waiting for? M said as much in his, in his words this morning. That one day we're going to be gloriously resurrected. Right? Standing there at the throne room of Christ, worshiping and glorifying God forever and ever and ever when he raises us up on that final day. You can't overcome your belief, unbelief yourself. God comes and gets you. Let's pray. God, help us now as we come to the table. Thank you, God, as this is such a heavy text this morning. But it's, but it's so true and so comforting if we'll allow it to be, comfort, be comforted by it. That this idea that you are, have saved us from eternity past as your people and you send your son Jesus to come get us and secure us and preserve us until you come again, until he comes again. That is unfathomably good news. So help us now, God, as we now come to the table, as we eat and we drink this morning, reminding ourselves that we are doing so by faith. It's in Christ's name. Amen.